Well, good morning, West Shore family and uh, friends who are joining us. We're so glad that you are worshiping with us today. I hope that you are nice and comfy in your homes. We miss you here in the sanctuary, of course. Uh, we look forward to the day that we can be together again, worshiping as a family, but we're so glad that we get to do this, uh, worship together in this way today. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to John chapter 19. That's where we're gonna be today. We've been in this series in the Gospel of John. Now, normally on Palm Sunday, that's what this Sunday is, uh, we would look at Jesus' triumphal entry and the crowd singing hosannas and praises to him. But of course, John covered that way back in John chapter 12. So we are going to, in John 19 today, look specifically at the cross. And I think that's a gift for us because what it's going to allow us to do is to spend a little extra time thinking about the implications of the cross. Uh, we want you to come back, worship with us on Friday in our Good Friday service uh, online. And as we do that, Ian's gonna really reflect for us on the nature of the cross and its benefits for us. So I wanna do something a little different today. I wanna think about the nature of the cross and what it speaks to us about the, our, the implications for the current situation that we're in. As we think about a global pandemic, as we look at that through the lens of the cross, what should we learn or how should we think? How does it inform uh, what we do and how we feel in light of that? So as we look at John 19, I want to remind us of this now. I'm going to read. I'm just going to read this for us. because I, I, And I want you to, if you have your Bibles, I, I want you to have them in hand. And I want you to look at the text. I, and I want to remind us that all scripture is precious. But when we come to the story of Jesus' crucifixion, we are not simply looking at a story that we've read a lot of times. Every time we read this, we should remember that we are bearing witness, not just reading a, a story about something that happened a long time ago. We're bearing witness to the reality of the wrath of God for sin being poured out upon his son, him bearing the weight of our sin, your sin, my sin. And so there's a, there's a depth to this. There's an emotional gravity to it as we read it. And I want to remind us of that. This is a precious text to us. It's a precious story. So let's read John 19 and then let's reflect on the cross and what does it speak about our present crisis to us? So John 19, beginning in verse one. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, hail king of the Jews and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, see, I'm bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, behold, the man and the chief priests and the officers saw him. They cried out, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered, we have a law. And according to that law, he ought to, be, he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. When Pilate heard this statement. He was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. 
So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement, and in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, behold your king. He cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. And there they crucified him. And with him, two others went on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Aramaic, Latin and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the King of the Jews. Rather, this man said, I am the King of the Jews. And Pilate answered what I have written. I have written. And the soldiers had crucified Jesus. He took his garments and divided them into four parts. One part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fill, fulfill the scripture, which says, they divided garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. After this, knowing that all was now finished to fulfill the scripture, Jesus said, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. since it was the day of preparation so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath for that Sabbath was a high day. The Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. Let me pray for us once more. Jesus, as we look at these words, they are precious to us. 
you are precious to us. I recognize there might be friends joining us today who've heard this story before, but not taken it as their own, not seen you as the sacrifice for their sin. I pray today that you'd open their eyes to your great love and your great mercy and your great power. And I pray for those of us who have taken your death for our death, taken your life for our life, trusted in your sacrifice to save us. Give us tender hearts again today. May we never look on this story, read past it coolly, as if what we have not just read, what we have just read is not of such weight and great importance that it mandates our full attention. So help us now, help me now. For my friend's sake, for your name's sake, to speak what is true, right, helpful, and good. Great in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> As we look at John's telling of the story of the cross, there are really two things that stand out. And, and I just want to touch on those. And then I want to ask, how do we apply that then in our current circumstances? And the two things that stand out as we look at John's telling of the cross is number one, that God planned the cross. Uh, and number two, that sin is serious. And so let's start with the first of those, that God planned the cross. If you noticed in verse 11, Jesus said to Pilate, you wouldn't have any authority over me unless it was given to you from above. And then he alludes to the, probably to the chief priest when he says, so he who handed me over to you has the greater sin, probably meaning that the chief priest should be the one that should recognize that he has come from God, that Jesus is indeed the Messiah. And because he hasn't recognized it, uh, he bears a, a weight of blame for that as the one who should recognize it as the chief religious leader of the Jewish people. But the most important thing that I want to point out to you there is that in verse 11, what Jesus is saying to Pilate is, look, you have all the authority of Rome behind you, but you are ultimately not the one who's putting me on the cross. I'm going to the cross because the father has called me to the cross because the father has planned the cross. And then we saw throughout the text in verse 24 and verse 28 and 29 in verse 36 and 37. I won't go back and reread all those, but you notice that numerous times John pointed out Jesus did this so that the scripture might be fulfilled. So he said, I thirst because he wanted to fulfill a scripture from the Old Testament that spoke about when the Messiah would be crucified. He said that, not, not one of his bones would be broken. That Jesus gave up his spirit and died before a bone could be broken. Because in Exodus, it says that the perfect Passover lamb that the people are supposed to, to uh, sacrifice for their sins as a placeholder for this now ultimate Passover lamb, who is Jesus, that that was done. And, it, and when it was done, that that lamb's legs were not to be broken, that no bone was to be broken. And so Jesus, of course, has no bones broken in the process of being crucified unlike those crucified next to him. The point, of course, of all that is that John wants us to see that God planned all of this a long time before it happened. All those prophecies, they're, they're the result of God's ultimate plan. So God planned the cross is the first thing, that he is in sovereign control. That's not in question, even in something as heinous and as difficult as the cross of his son. God has planned it and ordained it. That's the first thing. The second thing that John wants us to see is that sin is really serious, that it's deep and it's weighty and that you and I are impacted by it. As we look at this text, we see Pilate and we see the Jews and we see the soldiers and person after person who is 
exercising a demonstration of how great sin has a hold on them. But when we look at them, we're not just supposed to see them. We're supposed to see us. We're not just supposed to see them. We're supposed to see us. So let me make a few points there that you noticed that Pilate essentially gets backed into a corner politically here. He proclaims that Jesus is innocent, yet he's still willing to flog him. Uh, and yet ultimately he's still willing to hand him over to be crucified. Well, why? Because the Jews back him into a corner, essentially saying that if you don't entertain or if you sort of treat lightly this charge that Jesus is claiming to be a king, which makes him opposing to Caesar's power and a threat to Caesar's power, if you treat that lightly, you're going to fall out of standing with Caesar. So Pilate knows his own sort of political ambitions are at stake here. And so in spite of his proclamations of Jesus's innocence, we see that his love for power is so deep and so blinding and, and it will not be undone that he is absolutely willing to put an innocent man to death. One he seems to believe is innocent or at least no real threat is willing to do that. And we saw the same thing with the Jews, their love of power and position and privilege actually leads in this story to the moment where in order to back Pilate into a corner and to get what they want, they are willing to proclaim, we have no king but Caesar. I, I don't know if you noticed that as I read through it, maybe you missed that part, but man, when you read that, you're supposed to sort of be arrested because the Jewish people are supposed to be a people whose only king is God. They're supposed to worship him and him alone and look to him alone. And so not only is this a demonstration of immense blindness that they have their true king, their true Messiah, God in the flesh right in front of them, and they, they don't see him, they miss him. Not only is that blindness on display in that statement, we have no king but Caesar, but also on display is the fact that they're willing to say that Caesar's their king, which is in direct defiance to everything the Old Testament says, everything their scriptures say about what is true for them. Caesar's not their king, God is their king. And yet they're willing to say, we have no king but Caesar. And then in the cruelty of the cross, the crown of thorns, the, the, those thorns could have been 12 inches in length from what we know of the plant, the, the vine from which they're taken. Jesus would have been flogged twice here. Once, just as an act of sort of punishment is at the beginning of the chapter, Caesar, uh, sorry, Caesar, not Caesar, Pilate. Pilate is really hoping that he might flog Jesus. The Romans had three different sort of degrees of flogging. One was a lighter one, one was a medium one, and one was what would take place right before they crucified someone in order to weaken them uh, greatly. And so Jesus would have been flogged right before uh, he was taken out to the Jews as a way of Pilate both mocking the Jews, saying, this is your king, take a look at this guy, but also not just mocking them, but also is probably a way of him saying, look, I've punished him, let's let him go, let's be done with it at this point. And yet they cry out for more. And so then Jesus would have been flogged again, not recorded here, right before the cross, enduring immense pain. And of course, crucifixion is an elongated form of torturous death. You die from asphyxiation over a long period of time. It could last for days. The cruelty of trying to get a breath while dealing with the pain of the cross and the nails in the wrists and the feet. As we look at Pilate and the Jews, as we look at the cruelty of the cross, the thing that, we, that John wants us to see is that sin is really serious. Now, here's why I say that, because... When we look at Pilate's blindness and we look at the Jews' blindness and their love of power, we're supposed to see our love of power, our love of control and how it leads to all manner of sin in our own lives. 
I find that to be true. I find that I often don't do well when I'm not in control of the circumstances around me. That probably has something to say to our current circumstance or situation. I find that I often think that I know best and I find that a lot of my greatest sin is rooted in the fact that I need to be in control. It's rooted in the fact that I'm not okay not being in control. I have a love of power and I grasp at it. And my guess is you perhaps might too. In the cruelty of the cross, I meant to see my own cruelty, my willingness to be cruel. I mean, how often have we said to the person we love most in the world, the thing that we know because we love them, we know them so well, we, we know the thing we can say that would hurt them most. And at points we choose to say it in spite of the fact that we know how hurtful it will be. We all have the capacity to be cruel. So in all of this, as we read Pilate and the Jews, as we read the cross, I mean, even the, 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 how the soldiers are taken up with trivial matters as they're dividing Jesus's clothes, just to make a few coins and just a few feet away, what's taking place is the crucifixion of the son of God, the king of the universe. In their being taken up with trivial matters in the face of matters of great weight and importance, we're meant to see our own ability to be taken up with trivialities and dismiss items of great importance and weight. So in all that, in all that, what John wants us to see is that sin is really so deeply rooted. It's a big problem. It's not a small problem. It's not a white lie sort of a situation. It's grievous and weighty. Maybe another way to think about it is this. If what we're seeing in the cross is what was necessary to deal with sin, if it was God's solution for sin, then of course the weightiness of the cross speaks to the weightiness of sin, right? A big problem requires a big solution may be the way to think about that. All right, so those are the two things that John wants us to see. As we look at the cross, I just want you to reflect on that, that God planned the cross and that sin, your sin, my sin, that it's serious and it requires a serious solution. So how then do I apply a cross-centered mind to this pandemic? You know, as Christians, we think a lot about what it means for us to have a mind and a life centered on the cross of Jesus. And so I want to help us in that way. And as I said, Ian's going to help us on Friday think just more broadly about what it means what, what benefits have come to us through the cross, uh, how we've been set free by it. And I mean, just the great joy of its implications for us. But I want us to think in terms of how we apply a cross-centered mind to the current pandemic that we're encountering. And there's three, three things that I want to point out. We could say a lot more than this, but I just want to say three. The first is this. A cross-centered mind tells us that this is a time for courageous service, not giving in to fear. This is a time for courageous service, not giving in to fear. If God can plan the cross for his purposes, then he can certainly plan and use a virus for his purposes. And now remember in Romans chapter eight, verses 20 through 23, we get this picture uh, of Paul is writing and he's talking about the brokenness of creation as a result of the fall. He says, for we know that the creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, right? So in fact, let me just, let's, let's get it. Let's read it. Let me flip over to Romans. If you have your Bibles, you can flip there too with me. So in Romans, let's begin in verse 20, which says, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected in hope 
that the creation itself would be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. He says, now we know, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who are the first fruits of the spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Here's what Paul is saying there. He's saying that we encounter a brokenness in the created world because of the fall. And so as we think about COVID-19, we think about something that is in the world because of exactly what Romans 8 is talking about, that there is this rupture that's been caused by sin. The sin of the human race has fractured all of the created world. But here's the good thing that he also says there, that the created world is going to be redeemed, ultimately set free from its bondage to corruption because of the work of the cross. In the same way that we experience that we experience being set free by the work of the cross. When we come to Jesus, the creation is looking at us and going, oh, and then one day that work of the cross in you, human race will be made complete. It will be brought to fulfillment. And when it is, then it will, it will be applied to us as well, the creation around you. And so that being the case, when we think about viruses and natural disasters, we think about Romans eight and the reality of living in a world that has been brought to futility, a creation that experiences these sorts of things because of it. But here's the thing. Even in light of that, it's one thing to say, okay, well, here's Romans eight. And there is this truth that we're living in a world that's feeling the effects of the fall. And so that's just a reality that we have to deal with in light of that, or um, in spite of that, we don't dismiss that God is still in charge and in control of all that's happening. So think about Mark chapter four, verse 41, where Jesus has stilled the wind and the waves and the disciples marvel. And in, in Mark chapter four, verse 40, 41, they say, who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? The wind and the sea obey Jesus. That's as true today as it was the day he calmed the storm on the sea. Jesus is in control of the natural world. And the virus has not changed the fact that God has numbered our days. Living in a fallen world that feels the effects of sin in things like a virus does not mean that we are, that our that the truth that God has numbered our days has ceased to be. And we think about Psalm 139 verse 16 there, or how about Job 14 verse five? Listen to this. Job speaking says this. He says about God, since his, or sorry, speaking about human beings, he says, since his days are determined and the number of his months is with you and you have appointed his limits that he cannot pass. In other words, what Job is saying there is that God has determined the number of our days. Psalm 139 says the same thing. I'll read that to you as well. In Psalm 139, verse 16, we find these words. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet were none of them. So church family, here's my point. In light of that truth, in light of the fact that we live in a fallen world that feels the effects of sin in things like natural disasters and viruses and all kinds of difficulties, in light of that reality, but also in light of the reality that none of that undoes God's sovereign purposes and planning. When we look through the lens of the cross at 
our current pandemic, what we know is that God is able to take something that is heinous and difficult and hard and use it for his purposes. And that he does that, that he has not ceased to be in control. He has not ceased to number our days. So here's what that means. It means that this is a time of courageous service and not forgiving into fear. Believing in God's sovereign control over our current circumstance means that we press forward. We press forward with courage to serve others. We don't shrink back in fear. Now, let me say in that, that doesn't preclude being wise, right? It doesn't preclude making sure that we listen to what wisdom would um, dictate to us. It doesn't mean rushing headlong into foolish choices. Does mean being prudent, right? I want to make sure you hear me say that. Be prudent, be wise, practice social distancing. But I can almost guarantee you that there will come a point as we, this is not going to be a short-term thing. I don't believe in our world or in our country. And as we experience the effects of it, there will come moments where we're going to be faced with choices about whether we will serve in certain ways or whether we will not. God is going to bring you opportunities. And as he does, here's my request of you. My request of you is that you don't let your decision in that moment with whatever God brings you, don't let it be dictated to you by fear but let your choices be dictated by love of God and love of neighbor. Let your choices be dictated to you by love of God and love of neighbor. They will be wise choices and we sacrificial choices. There may be a cost to those, but we as people of the cross are called to be those who do not shrink back in fear, who don't let our choices be done, be dictated to us by the fear that we feel. And I want to say the fear that we feel will be real. Christians are also not people, a people of the cross who dismiss the reality of fear. We feel it every day in almost every conversation I've had in my own life. Amanda and I were talking about uh, a situation in our own family, an opportunity that God was bringing to us. And we were thinking about it. And I just got done watching some news about the spread of the virus. And I just thought to myself, I just found myself, I found fear rising up in me. And my wife, because she's godly and wise, reminded me that we are to make our choices not based out of fear, but out of love. The knowledge that we are loved and the knowledge that we are to love God and love others. It's a totally different perspective. So church family, be wise, be prudent, but let your choices be made out of love, not out of fear. It is a time for courageous service, not giving into fear. The second thing, as we look through this, at this pandemic through the lens of the cross that we see is that this is a time for confession, repentance, and prayer and fasting. This is a time for confession, repentance, prayer, and fasting. It's important that we remember, we don't know God's specific purpose in every way when it comes to this pandemic. We don't know what God intends to do. And it would be foolish for us to say, oh, I, I know for any human to say, I know exactly what God is up to here in the world. We don't, but we do know some general truths about what God says about these kinds of things. So in one sense, we've already seen in Romans eight, that there's this reality that we live in a fallen world and yet God is sovereign over it. He's operating in it, behind it, above it. 
to bring about his purposes. And the cross teaches us that. But the cross also reminds us when we look through, through the lens of the cross at our current circumstance and our current situation, we're reminded that God does say at points, events like these happen because God is trying to draw people into repentance. He's trying to show them their error so that they might come. And that's true both for the church, for those of us who are followers of Jesus and those of us who are not. Let me point you to two texts there that are really helpful. I'm not going to read them. I'll just kind of give a summary of them. We know that at points, God brings discipline for sin and judgment for sin. Now, let me say, for those of you who are in Christ Jesus, cling to this precious truth. Whenever God perhaps brings something difficult into your life as a result of your sin, because sometimes he does, it is never punishment that separates you from him. It is always the discipline of a loving father, always, because punishment has been born on the cross that we've just looked at. And we should sing hallelujah over that. We should praise God for that. We should be thankful for that. We never encounter his punitive hand of punishment upon us because Christ has been punished for our sins. Yet we do experience his disciplinary hand. So here's what we know. We know that at times, at times, God will bring natural disasters, difficulties, even disease, he will bring as a way to draw people towards confession and repentance. Let me tell you where I get that from. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 30 through 32. Paul is writing about some believers who are taking the Lord's Supper, so communion, in a way that is unbecoming to Christ. They're not examining themselves. They're continuing forward in sin. They, have, they seem to have no intention of actually understanding that they're taking in the body of Christ symbolically uh, and in doing so are meant to put away sin. That it's, it's meant to remind them that they should put away the sin in their life and not just treat it as trivial. And in that then, he says, in those verses, Paul tells us that God is punishing believers or not, sorry, not punishing, but disciplining believers, even to the point, he says, some of you are sick and some of you have even died because of the sin that you're participating in as it relates to the Lord's Supper. Now, if it's true of that, then it can be true of other sins in our life as well, that God perhaps would bring a discipline even to the point of death in the life of a believer. And it says, Paul says there, he does that in order essentially to cut off the trajectory of their sin so that they wouldn't go further and further into it, but as an act of mercy would even cut their life short so that they might be drawn back to him and not drawn further away from him. Now that's, honestly, it's, it's one of those tough texts to, to wrestle with and to deal with. But there it is in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, where for a believer, perhaps he might even cut their life short as an act of mercy so that they wouldn't continue to walk in the full extent of their sin. And, and at the end of that text in verse 32, and he says, and be condemned with the world. Or how about in Luke chapter 13, verse one through five, this perhaps is for those of you who are not followers of Jesus. In that story, Jesus approached and he's asked essentially, how do you make sense of, of a natural disaster of some kind of what seems to be a random event? They refer to this time where 18 people had died because a wall fell down and they just, there was, they hadn't done anything wrong, seemingly. They were just there and it just happened. And they just, they're asking Jesus, what do we make of God in those kinds of circumstances? And Jesus's response is to say, look, I promise you, those 18 people who died were not more sinful, nor were they less sinful than you or than anyone else in Jerusalem. But he then goes on to say, the purpose of those kinds of events is that you would repent. Because he says, you likewise will come under the judgment of God unless you repent. 
So Jesus is telling us there that these kinds of events are there to draw us to repentance. That's the thing I want you to see here. And again, not all natural disasters, not all difficulty. Some of them are the Romans 8 version of that, living in the effects of a fallen world. But some of them come about as a discipline directly for sin and believers or judgment upon those who do not believe. Now, if that's true in those cases, then it's true of this virus as we look at it whether it be a Romans 8 sort of situation or a Luke 13 sort of situation as we just read in the life of any one particular person, we, one of the things we can say is that this, anytime we encounter something as significant and as difficult as this, it's a call to us to repentance, to confession and repentance. And I would say that this should be then a season of, of renewed prayer and fasting, particularly for the, for the people of God that we should be a people who are regularly praying and fasting. I'd encourage you, pick a day of the week and say, I'm going to fast. I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray that God would deliver us from this. I'm going to pray that he would protect us. I'm going to pray that he would give us a heart to see what he's up to in this. And that where there's sin in my life, in the life of my church, in the life of my community, that God would draw us to repentance. Last thing, third observation I'll make, how do we view through the lens of the cross. Oh, sorry. Let, let me say too, I, I, I almost passed over this. That would have been a big misstep here. The great news of the cross, when we look at the cross, is that we know that we're supposed to be drawn to repentance when we look at the cross. So the great news is we don't repent and find God unwilling to forgive. The message of the cross is that that forgiveness is there. It's given to us. If we'll take it, if we'll receive it. So when God uses events like these, to say, I need to bring you to confession and I need to bring you to repentance. When we repent, the good news of the cross is that that repentance it will lead to forgiveness. We won't be left outside of God's forgiveness if we will come to him through Christ Jesus. Now, the third thing then, this is a time for lament and grief. And I want to make sure you hear me say that because the second we start talking about sovereignty, here's the mistake so many people make. It's just, it's human nature that we do this. We say, well, God is sovereign and that should lead to some version of like a stoic approach to this, that we should be stoic in the face of suffering and stoic in the face of death and stoic in the face of, face of disease. And we should, we should just sort of be able to tamp down fear in our hearts over the events unfolding in front of us um, by just saying, God is sovereign and that, that's enough. And it, it just feels cool and cold and calculated. But friends, let me, let me just encourage you not to make that error because claiming God's sovereignty, claiming God's sovereignty is not the same as saying that we should not grieve or that God is not filled with love and mercy and compassion. I mean, remember that Jesus is the same God today who raised Lazarus from the grave and wept before he did it because he felt such great compassion and love and mercy in his heart, even knowing what he would do in his sovereign power. Look, knowing that God is not forced to endure what he does not will does not mean that we do not grieve. 
We believe that God is sovereign and full of love and mercy and compassion. And this is so important. We say it all the time, but please remember church family that everything that God is, he is always and completely. He never lets go of any aspect of his character. So to be sovereign, he does not let go of love and compassion and mercy. To be loving and compassionate and merciful, he does not lay down his sovereignty and his claim to control the events that are unfolding in the world. Those two things, while in our minds sometimes seem hard to reconcile, are true about God. And to hold those in tension and to hold those tightly is what the witness of scripture calls us to. So then let's not make that error. Now, when we look at the cross, let's remember, here's here's how the lens of the cross applies. When we look at the lens of the cross and we say, God planned it. He ordained that his son would go to the cross. He prophesied it long before and Jesus fulfilling those prophecies again and again. And he did it to deal with sin, which is very serious. When we look at that, it doesn't mean we don't grieve. When we read the story of the cross, we choke up because we're listening to the story of Jesus paying the penalty for our sin. And so we don't dismiss God's sovereignty in that, nor do we say, well, then I don't need to grieve because God planned that and he ordained it. Therefore, I'm indifferent towards it. No, far from it. We're moved to deeper grief and deeper lament. In fact, we can't experience God's sovereignty well unless we understand what it is to grieve and lament. And church, I would tell you, this is a season for grieving and lamenting. We're going to encounter friends and loved ones in the days ahead who are mourning. We have brothers and sisters serving in healthcare right now who every day have to battle against the fear of perhaps not having the appropriate equipment to do the job that God has called them to do. And yet they step forward courageously in service. They are our great demonstrators right now of what it looks like to remember that we're called to not to fear, but to courageous service. And even in light of that daily, they have to battle that fear. I know that we know that you do. We love you for setting an example for us and guiding us, showing us what it looks like to trust in the Lord, even as you're wise and prudent in the exercise of your job. This is a time, this is a time for prayer and fasting. It's a time for grieving and lament because as brothers and sisters deal with fear, perhaps as brothers and sisters and our world deals deals with the consequences of loss and death. It's not a time just simply to say, well, God is sovereign. That's true, but it's a time to grieve and lament that we are experiencing both the effects of the futility that's been brought on the creation because of sin. It's a time to lament loss because God is full of love and compassion and mercy. And I want to make sure church family that you hear me say that don't apply God's sovereignty as a cold balm, apply it as a warm healing bath. That's what it is because it comes always with his sovereign love and compassion and mercy. So as we experience the effects of this virus, we will grieve and it will be right for us to do so. All right, there's much more that we could say and there's much more we'll need to say in the days ahead as we navigate these days. But all that must be said must be said by way of putting the lens of the cross up to our circumstances. That's really been my ambition here today, church family, is just to help you put the lens of the cross as we look at John 19 up against it. Now come back on Friday, join us. We're gonna, we're gonna just celebrate. Uh, we're gonna mourn the cross, but we're also going to be reminded of its massive impact upon us at a spiritual level and across the board in our lives, not just in our current circumstances, but just in, at all times and in all places, what the cross has meant for those who come to it and believe in it.
So we love you, your love. Now, George is gonna come up here in just a moment. I'm gonna pray for us. He's gonna come up and we just wanna invite you to just receive. He's gonna sing a song. He just reminds us uh, of God's goodness and love and calling sinners into repentance as we've talked about. And so we just want you to receive that. And then we're gonna stand and we'll worship together to close our time together. All right, let me, let me pray. Lord, we thank you for the truth of your word. I pray that it would land in our hearts and sit there and have a, a, just a deep impact upon us. I pray as I prayed at the outset of this now, for those of us who are your followers, help us to see our current circumstances through the lens of the cross. For those who are not yet your followers, they're joining us today. We're so glad for that. We pray that they might see that you are both sovereign, powerful, and in control. They'd see that through your cross, and we pray that they would see that you are loving and merciful, and they'd see that through your cross, how you've dealt with their sin. Only they'd come to you. So I pray that you would draw them with your great kindness that leads us to repentance. That's what you tell us. The kindness of the cross leads us to repentance. We love you. We love offering you our praises in our homes now, in all the places where we are separated from one another. Your people are unified in heart and that we love you. We want you to guide and direct us. We are your people. We say yes to all that you call us to before we even know what it is. Help us to walk in it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.